Good morning, everyone. I wish we were all together and I could read with you, but we'll do it this way instead this morning. I get to read Luke 15, 1 to 7 today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Everybody loves a story, right? I see people um, actually wake up when I tell a story and get outside the sermon. Um, it, it captures people's imagination. Stories do. That's why they're so important, among other reasons. They're powerful, they're memorable, and actually they're profound as well. Because they're not just about a particular individual, they're about an idea, and an idea is communicated through story in a rather unique way. You know, in spite of um, his reputation as being the greatest philosopher of all time, Plato, well, I think he's the greatest philosopher of all time, <clears throat> in spite of his reputation for being an intellectual giant, uh, being a person who could really go deep philosophically and you'd get lost in a heartbeat because of the way he thought and the detail in his mind. In spite of all that, you know what he's probably best known for? A story called The Allegory of the Cave. Or how about C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, apologist for the Christian faith? Yeah, he wrote all kinds of things. Mere Christianity is a great one, but what he's mostly known for? Chronicles of Narnia, children's writing. Or you might not think of this, but how about Albert Einstein? The guy who invents or discovers a theory of relativity? This guy, on one occasion, was asked by a mother, according to the story, how she should train her children to be smart. <clears throat> Einstein responded this way. If you want your children to be intelligent, read them fairy tales. And apparently her follow-up was, okay, but what else? And his follow-up was, if you want them to be very intelligent, read them more fairy tales. I love that because I think Albert Einstein knew something, that great scientist, that sometimes we forget. I don't think... My wife is an elementary school principal. I don't think if Albert Einstein applied to be an elementary teacher, she would hire him. Right? Probably not. The guy's operating in the stratosphere. Could he bring it down? I don't know enough stories about Albert Einstein to know whether or not he could bring it down, but he knew that it needed to be brought down. Now, Jesus was the absolute master teacher storyteller. Sometimes we think that if a person is brilliant, 
it's not possible for them to put the cookies on the lower shelf, so to speak. But wait a minute. Jesus, the creator of the universe. Jesus, who understood the theory of relativity 10,000 years before Einstein even thought about it. Jesus, the one who knows everything, who is God incarnate, omniscient, completely in the stratosphere, intellectually. Jesus taught us with stories. He captured our imagination with stories called parables. Why? Why teach with parables? Actually, on one occasion in Matthew's gospel, there was an episode when Jesus was teaching and Matthew said he didn't teach them anything except through parables. It's like they couldn't get it otherwise. So he told them a story. Why? I think because stories are accessible. When someone tells a story, for the most part, especially the parables in the first century, people would connect with it because they'd experienced something like it. Or they connected with the people who were in the story the images in the story. That's one reason stories were used by Jesus. Also, stories were probably used by Jesus because it allowed him to include everyone. In his stories, there were children, there were adults, there was the rich, there was the poor, there was the so-called righteous, and there was the sinners. Everybody's in the stories. I think there's a third reason why stories were so important to Jesus. Because they were adaptable. Maybe the word malleable works for you. They just had a way of stepping into one's reality and application was easy and free. And as a matter of fact, dangerously free. Because you know what you can do with stories. You can do whatever you want to with them. You can take a story and make your own application. It might have nothing to do with what the storyteller had in mind. But Jesus took the risk and he told the story to teach a divine truth. As we consider a few of the stories in the Gospels, as I said, they're called parables. And by the way, parable, the word itself, means to cast down alongside of. Right? So imagine yourself walking. A parable is something that Jesus, while you're walking, just throws down in front of you, alongside you. And says, you're experiencing this. Let me tell you a story. Here's the reality that you're currently in. Let me tell you a story about some other reality. And he just throws it right alongside your, your pathway. First story I want you to remember is the story of the mustard seed. Remember how that one goes? Jesus actually was responding to someone when they asked him, what's the kingdom of heaven like? So the mustard seed story might be summarized this way. This is what the kingdom's like. As a matter of fact, if you want to reduce all the parables to one thing, that's pretty dangerous, but I'll do it anyway. It's stories about the kingdom. That's really what the parable is about. Jesus said, you want to know what the kingdom's like? Ah, what can I say? It's almost like he stopped and said, let me think a minute, as if he needed to. I got it. It's like a mustard seed. You know what a mustard seed's like, Jesus says. A man has a garden, and he takes this tiny little seed, which if I held it in my hand, you could hardly see it. He takes that tiny little seed, and he plants it in his garden. And that garden, 
blossoms everywhere, but the mustard seed explodes. And it's bigger than any plant in the garden. It's so big, it's literally a tree, and the birds come and they perch in it. You know what birds do when they perch in stuff? They transfer seeds. And that mustard seed just produces growth that's phenomenal. You want to know what the kingdom is like? It's like a mustard seed. Most of the time, nobody even notices it. But later, it explodes. Second parable. Parable of the Good Samaritan. This one is probably, maybe, the most famous parable of all. You know the story of the Good Samaritan. Again, Jesus is being asked about the kingdom and how to inherit eternal life. And the man who's the teacher of the law says, how should I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, follow the commandments. You know what those are, right? Well, of course, the teacher of the law did. And he knew what the summary of the commandments was. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, do that. And the man who wanted to find a way out wanted an escape clause, said to Jesus, okay, I I get it, but who's my neighbor? Why do you even ask that? He wanted to know who he needed to be nice to. He wanted to know if he could treat some people differently. And Jesus said, instead of telling you who your neighbor is, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a man who was going to Jericho, and on his trip, he fell among thieves. And by the way, the route between Jericho and Jerusalem was treacherous. Had lots of, well, like crevices and caves and mountainous areas. And in that region, frequently, robbers, bandits, would be back in those caves, waiting for an unsuspecting traveler to emerge from around the corner on the path and they would swoop down and grab the guy and beat him up. That's why most of the time if you were traveling that road, you would have somebody accompanying you. You would go as a group, not by yourself. But in this story, one man is traveling all by himself and the inevitable happens. The robbers swoop down on him. They beat him up within an inch of his life. They take his clothing. He's got nothing left. Here's a picture of what it might have looked like. See, the man just got a loincloth on because he's been stripped. And the man behind him is uh, trying to help him. He's going to dress his wounds. He's going to put him on his donkey. He's going to take him to an inn. When he takes him to an inn, he's going to tell the innkeeper, I want you to uh, nurse this guy back to health. I'm on my way on a journey. Here's some money when I come back. Tell me how much more I owe you and I'll pay for it. Just make him good again. Let me go back to the image. What you can't hardly see way out there is there are two figures just over the shoulder of the one who is helping. One figure is slinking away and the other figure is even further out in the landscape. You know who they are? It's the priest and the Levite who first came by and saw the man who was helpless and turned aside and went the other way. And who's the man that's helping the poor soul? The man is a Samaritan. And it's likely 
that the man who's beaten within an inch of his life is a Jew. And Samaritans don't associate with Jews. Samaritans were persecuted by Jews, cut out by Jews. But the Samaritan, not the man's real neighbors, priest and Levite, the Samaritan picks him up. Jesus says, there's the answer to your snarky question. Everybody's your neighbor. You don't treat the people in your family and your friends and your tribe one way and treat the other people like they're enemies. That's not the kingdom of God. That's the way you're supposed to live. A third parable is the parable of the tax collector. You know the story of the tax collector. He was at the temple and he was the most despised and he was considered to be one of the most wicked because not only would this Jewish man who was a tax collector take money on behalf of the Roman Empire from his own people, he would probably take extra money and put it in his back pocket. And that's the way he made his living. And a lot of times it was a lucrative lifestyle This tax collector, understanding the depth of his own sin, goes to the temple. And when he's at the temple, he's beating his chest and he's saying, God, I can't believe it. I'm awful. Please forgive me, a sinner. I understand who I am. There's another character in the story as well. It's the Pharisee who's standing there, hands up, all dressed up in his righteous garb. And he's saying, God, I thank you. I'm not like that pig. I thank you that I'm righteous, that I tithe, that I follow the law. And Jesus says, you want to know which one is ready for the kingdom of heaven? You want to know which one is in the kingdom of heaven? You want to know which way you're supposed to be when you're a member of the kingdom of heaven? You're supposed to be like the tax collector, not the Pharisee. You know, that's why it is so important in the history of the Christian church that we have confessions. They're embedded in the liturgy. They're in our songs. They're part of our prayers. Why? Because we're always the tax collector. We're never the Pharisee. We never get to the place that we put on righteous robes and condemn other people. No, we don't. What we say is, God, I thank you for being merciful to me, a sinner. That's how you live in the kingdom, says Jesus. Another parable is the parable of the prodigal son. There's some wonderful artwork in the history of the church related to these parables. I just showed you one. This one's from Rembrandt. You can tell the difference in the artists. They're so different in the way they depict things and the the images and the coloring and the darkness. Rembrandt was always kind of dark with his pictures. You see the young man kneeling there? That's a prodigal son. He's coming back home. He's coming back home because the father let him go. He didn't push him out. The son came and said, look, I'm tired of it all. I want my money now. I want out of this place. 
And the father said, okay, here you go. Make a new life for yourself. You know where his life ended? It ended in poverty. He was destitute. He was working, probably, no doubt, for a Gentile who raised pigs. Not the thing a Jew would ordinarily do. And he found himself in the pig pen, wanting to eat the food the pigs were eating because he didn't have anything left. He was in rags. And he said, this is crazy. All my money's gone. All my friends are gone. Everything my father had and gave to me is vanished. He came to his senses and he said, the servants back at my father's house are eating better than this, living better than this, dressed better than this. I'm going back. And I'm going to say to my father, Father, I don't even want to be your son. I'm not worthy of that. I want to be a hired servant. Just let me back in. I'll work for you. And of course, you know the story. He goes back, and when he goes back, he doesn't realize, but his father has been waiting and longing and looking for him every day. And when he sees him, he runs towards him, and the son kneels down and starts the confession, and the father interrupts it and says, no, my son, stop, stop. You're my son. I'm so glad to have you back. We're going to throw a party. We're going to have a feast. I mean, by the way, I think the best way to understand the feast is to think of a wedding. I mean, this was a big deal. The fatted calf. They brought it out and everybody was eating. I'm sorry if you're offended by this, but lots of alcohol rolling out too. And people were happy and drunk. And you know what happens at parties? People dance and sing. If it had been a party today, there'd have been a DJ and there'd have been a band and there'd have been a lot of alcohol and a lot of dancing. This is the party, says the father. You're back and we're going to celebrate. Oh, back to the picture again. Well, I'm going to try to go back to the picture. See the shadowy figure Back at the top, you can barely see his face. Probably depicts the elder brother. The elder brother talks to the father about this, and he says, are you kidding me? I've been here doing all the work. He's been running around. He's been living the high life. Party, dance prostitutes, the whole deal. And now he's coming back and you're going to give him a party? Are you serious? And the father says to him, son, you don't understand. Once your brother was lost and now he's found. How can we do anything but celebrate? Well, the party goes on. And the son is received back. And the picture is about God. God receives back the sinner. God is like the father who lets you go. Who gives you your freedom. Let you make a mess of your life. Until you've got nothing left. And then when you turn back, he says, welcome home. Man, 
You could write an entire book about forgiveness and not get to that. Just tell the story. The last parable I want to mention is the parable of the lost sheep. And here too, there's a picture in an artist's rendition. You notice the sheep is on the back of the shepherd's neck. He's bringing it home. And you can see off in the distance the other sheep. And you see the other two shepherds that are there. And they're rejoicing, hands up. Almost like a praise and worship service, right? Sheep's back home. Jesus said, which of you, if he owned sheep like that, wouldn't go after the one that was lost? Of course you would. And which of you, if you owned sheep like that, and the shepherd found the sheep, wouldn't rejoice when he came back? Of course you would. Why? Because that's what you do. A sheep's been lost. And now it's back. And just like that in heaven, the angels are more delighted by someone who is a sinner that comes to faith, that comes to God, than they are in a hundred righteous people standing all around. He's basically talking to the Pharisees again, who think themselves righteous. When he found the sheep, there was a rejoicing. So, What's the conclusion of the matter? <clears throat> you know what I almost did? I can't help myself, so I didn't do it. But I almost said this and then stopped. And here's what I almost said. What's the conclusion of the matter? I don't know. Take the stories and find out. Take the stories with you and find out. Apply them to life. Ask the question and find the answer yourself. But since I can't control myself when it comes to sermons, I'll make a couple of suggestions. (laughs) Uh, The first thing is this, is Are you trying to be a big deal for the kingdom? Or are you worried that you're not a big deal for the kingdom? Do you want to be a big deal for the kingdom? We have staff devotions every week before we do the meetings during the week. And without making anybody feel embarrassed. Somebody brought a devotional about that this week. The person basically said, I spent a lot of time wanting to be somebody. And then I realized I was barking up a wrong tree. It's going down the wrong path. Because really it was all about me. So, confession. You know what? I I would like this church to be 10 times its size. It's not. Maybe it's my fault. 
Or maybe it's the way God wants it to be. I would like to plant a bigger seed. I'd like to be known for something bigger. And when that impulse kicks in, I need to remind myself of the story of the mustard seed. It's not about you, Bob. It's about a tiny little seed. There almost nobody even sees. Put it in the ground and let God do the work. Let his kingdom come. So if you think your role's not big enough, if you think you're not bringing enough people to Jesus, if you think you're not whatever, fill in the blank, stop it already. Take a deep breath for crying out loud and take the mustard seed and plant it and forget it. Oh, I don't mean forget about the kingdom of God, but forget you're trying to be something big. Just plant the seed. God will make it grow. Second thing, in the story of the prodigal son, who are you? Are you the prodigal son? If you are, God lets you go. He lets you run. He lets you wander. He lets you get to the end of rope. I hope you're at the end of your rope. But no matter where you are, what you've done, you can come back, you see? Because that's the Father. He wants you to come back. No matter what kind of mistakes you've made, it doesn't matter. Stop. Let's not talk about that. Just come back. Because he's the Father. Or are you the elder son? Are you the one that says, I've been doing it all along. I've been doing it right. I deserve some praise here. And all you're doing is talking about the guy who came in off the street. The guy who left the pig pen. And you're a little jealous. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. There's a deep darkness there that's deeper than the pig pen. Don't go there. So the final question about the stories is, maybe you're a lost sheep. Sheep wander, don't they? We've all wandered. The shepherd's going to come after you. So do this, speaking of images and parables. Stop munching on stuff long enough to hear. Stop chasing the world and all the glamour long enough to hear. And if you stop, you'll hear the shepherd's voice. Because he's calling. All you have to do is turn around. He'll put you on his shoulders and bring you back to the kingdom of God. Let's pray.
Lord, we're glad that you told us about yourself and about the kingdom and stories. We can understand stories better than we can understand logic and flat words. And you've given us some stories, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, Lord, help us to take the stories and not allow the preconceived ideas of exactly what the stories mean to dictate our thinking. Help us, dangerous as it is, to take the stories and apply them to our life right here, right now, where we are. And then, Lord, move us to confession. Help us return to the people that we are called to be. Give us the grace to follow. And let us rejoice, Lord. Rejoice that you are such a wonderful father. That you're such an incredible shepherd. That you rejoice over us with singing. That your grace is so much greater than our sins. May we rejoice in that fact. That your grace is greater than any of our sins. And may our hearts turn back to you. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.